Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, from miracles out of nowhere to classic rock icons, Kansas. Hey. Hey, Dan. Good to Thanks. see you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, sure. Thanks for having, having us. Yeah, nice to see you. Here. Come sit down here. Ronnie, good Thanks to see you. Me. Pleasure. Can I tell you something? Kansas has sold over 30 million albums worldwide. And for nearly five decades, they've been rocking audiences around the world. But what really made them unique was the history-making style of music they launched. In the early 1970s, a new experimental genre of rock was gaining traction in Europe, but it was an obscure band from Topeka, Kansas, that pioneered progressive rock in America. I heard the men saying something, captains tell they pay you well, and they say It was their introspective lyrics and genre-bending musical accompaniments that set Kansas apart. While their first three albums enjoyed only moderate commercial success, everything changed with their fourth album, Left Overture, and their hit single, Carry On Wayward Son. That rock anthem took the band from opening act to major headliner. And within a year, the band released a ballad that would become an even bigger hit. I close my eyes Only for a moment and the moment's gone Dust in the Wind was Kansas's first top ten single. Dust in the Wind And the song has only grown in popularity since. It continues to show up in pop culture. All we are is dust in the wind. And because of that song and others, 
Kansas spent over 200 weeks on the top of the Billboard charts throughout the 70s and 80s. And they still dominate classic rock radio today. Kansas is still going strong, but drummer Phil Ehart and guitarist Richard Williams are the only two founding members that remain in the band. Carrie Livgren, the band's prolific songwriter, left in 1983, and Steve Walsh retired in 2014. Kansas has a new lead singer. Ronnie Platt joined the band, and now it seems Kansas is having a creative rebirth. In 2016, Kansas released their highly anticipated album, The Prelude Implicit, their first in almost two decades. I caught up with Phil Ehart, Richard Williams, and Ronnie Platt in New York to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the band's seminal album, Point of No Return. So, how you doing? Beautiful. Yeah, we're doing well. We're in New York. You have this 40th anniversary tour now. Tell me what you hope to accomplish with it. Well, we did one with the Left Overture album, and that being the 40th anniversary of that particular album, not expecting it to, to last as long as it did. It was a year and a half. Uh, we were just trying to create a venue where we could let people know we had a new album out. We did an album called The Prelude Implicit, which was the first album in 16 years. Well, the so we tagged that on with the Left Overture 40th anniversary. It it took off. So it's like, well, we got an even bigger album coming up right after that, which is the Point of Return album. So let's do that again. It was it's just so much fun to go out and play for two and a half hours, and it's really great for the band. It's great for the fans. They really have enjoyed it. So who knew? It's no secret when you look at Kansas, the band and its history that the band has, has changed. There have been many band members over the years. With a, a lot of bands, and this is not meant as a criticism, the band's identity is with the musicians, and the musicians, the same musicians, have been in the same band maybe 35, 40 years or more. That's not the case with Kansas. Well, you're, you're correct, but you have to remember that Richard and I, uh, as members, started to change. and. Members change for a variety of reasons, whether it was um, uh, just retirement, I, I just want to go home, uh, uh, I want to uh, seek a career on my own, uh, I want to start another band, um, you know, substance reasons. I mean, there was, there was a number of reasons over the years. But, you know, Richard and I would always kind of sit there and look at each other and go, well, is this going <laughs> to keep what? going? We're like the last guys standing or what? But then we came to the realization that there, Kansas is not about one person. It's not even about six or seven people. Kansas is about the music. And our fans let us know that long before he and I realized it, that we're coming because we want to hear Ronnie sing that song, or that we want to hear David Ragsdale play that violin, or, you know, Dave Mannion on the keyboards, you know, the newer guys, Zach Risby on, on the second guitar. The, as the new band started to come together, it, we realized it's not about him, it's not about me, it's not about any of the original six. Kansas is known for depth of lyrical writing. Kansas is known for classical inspirations. 
intricate arrangements. I want to ask you first, Ronnie, which of those you think is the most descriptive or the most important to Kansas? To me, I think it's the classical inspirations. It's what Kerry drew from, and you know, th there's a reason why symphonies play Mozart's music today, is that, that intensity. So that's what it is for me, that, that classical influence that, that adds such diversity and dynamics to the music. And depth. And depth. Well, Phil, what about yourself? I think I can probably speak for Rich and myself on this because <laughs> we've lived through those arrangements. Lots of times the lyrics were brought and they were done. Rich and I didn't have a lot of input on Carrie's lyrics. Who would, you know? Um, or the classical thing that he would, uh, like Ronnie said, that's Carrie's background. But the arrangements, many times these songs were just brought in in like a, a box of uh, puzzle pieces and just, <clears throat> well, there's a song for America, have fun with it. And we're kind of going, okay, we got, and, and it was all of us. It was Steve and Dave and Ron, all of us would take these songs and arrange them and did a lot of editing. You know, do we really need five endings? Can we just do two endings, you know? Let's get rid of those three and, and arrange the songs in such a way that they, that they flowed musically, the lyrics flowed. It gave the song a foundation to put that classical influence into, uh, but also what we did is we turned it in, into rock. And that was something that was very important to me and Rich and Dave. This band needs to rock. You know, we can have all this stuff, which is great, but we're a rock band. And, and I think that gave this, from the arrangements, that gave the band all that to sit on top of that rock foundation. Dan explores how the band became known as Miracles Out of Nowhere when Dan Rather's big interview with Kansas returns. How did Kansas become known as the Miracles Out of Nowhere? Let's find out as Dan Rather's big interview continues. In 2015, Kansas released a feature-length documentary retrospective aptly titled Miracles Out of Nowhere. That film looks back at the band's improbable rise to fame, which began back in 1970 in Topeka, Kansas. The band was named after the six original members' home state, far away from the epicenter of the music industry. So the odds of Kansas getting a record deal while playing local gigs seemed pretty unlikely. That is, until a creative marketing ploy got the attention of a famous music mogul. I'm always interested in stories. Richard, maybe you can tell me the story of the free beer. Why does the phrase free beer and the whole idea of free beer mean so much to Kansas? Well, we had gone to liberal Kansas did, and did a demo tape. We had just a few of them. We sent them off to different people. Um, a friend was living here in New York and we'd heard that Don Kirshner had a new record label. So he, we, it was sent to him so he could deliver it. So we're playing, I think it was in Dodge City. And during a break, the bartender says, you guys got a phone call. And he's like, well, yeah, hi, this is Wally Gold from Don Kirshner. We heard your tape, really liked it. 
Uh, I'd like to come out in a couple weeks and see the band. It's like, okay, what are we going to do? Um, well, there was a, out in the center of Kansas, there was a little town called Allenwood. There's just a few blocks, nothing near it. And at the time, it's since been torn down, it was an old opera house, the Allenwood Opera House. And bands would rent the place for 100 bucks or so. So Wally Gold is coming out. How are we going to impress this guy? And how are we going to get people to show up? Yeah, what if nobody shows up? Well, yeah, because yeah. usually it was like 10 people would show up. Well, what if we advertise, you know, free beer? And so we bought some kegs of beer and was set up there. And so when Wally shows up, many people are in the street that can't get in. The place is packed. Wally probably doesn't know what's going on at all. And he calls Don and says, oh, there's something really going on here with these guys. You know, people are coming from everywhere. They're here on tractors for the show. They're there for the beer. <laughs> tractors. <laughs> but... Um, a bunch of young kids came up with a very genius marketing moment. How did what started out as a small band in high school make it all the way from Topeka to the big time? Very big time. Um, we were fortunate to have some great material written. But there's so much incredible luck <laughs> involved in all this because there's always somebody better, a faster guitar player, a better guitar player, a better singer. There's so many things. We had a lot of tenacity. We were young enough to not have any fear of what was in front of us and united enough to just march forward through it all. And so we just kind of kicked down a lot of doors along the way. Uh, now, Topeka being quite isolated, but it was like any other town. There was a radio, and when the, with the British invasion, the, the town exploded. So, you know, it was the kind of thing that, uh, as Rich said, th things would come at us and we just used common sense and tried not to implode because we're just taking these little steps and here came this contract. We signed the contract. We went to the local IGA and, and bought barbecue to celebrate because that's all we could afford because up to those three years before that, we'd been living on a dollar a day. Each guy in the band got a dollar every day. So you, you can imagine going through that when you have this opportunity you just have to take a minute, you know, don't be an idiot. Don't blow this. Use some common sense. Get yourself signed to where you have an opportunity. And from there, from there, we started, you know, signed with an agency, and we started opening for other bands. But this gives us an opportunity, and with your permission, I'll turn to Richard. Sure. When you're opening for Aerosmith, <laughs> there is that story yeah. that somebody perhaps you would want to identify somebody, thought that uh, your band was so good that he wanted to pull the plug on at least the singer so that when Aerosmith came on, they didn't feel challenged. You remember well, that story? Oh, yeah. Well, um, Aerosmith, we had done some shows together, and they were becoming popular at a little faster rate, but around the same time. And we had been playing together, and we got along great. We got to, we're playing in Kansas now, and this is kind of our turf. And, but, you know, we were still first on the bill, and they were closing the show. We had been told that um, their singer, which is nothing against him, it's a funny story now, but Stephen Tyler, who is, you know, a tremendous rock vocalist, but at the time he had a problem sometimes with the bands going over a little too well. And we were told that sometimes he would come out and unplug the band. So what we did was we ran dummy lines to where he could get to and we ran our, our main power to another direction that was hidden so he came out there to 
stop our show. And it didn't work, and I guess he got quite upset about it. And our bass player went after him, and there was a confrontation, and <laughs> it wasn't a good moment. Uh, so many bands, young bands in that era, were all very competitive with each, with each other. And now when you see them, say, hey, how you doing? You know, it's not that way anymore. But at the time, um, just follow that. You know, you, you really wanted to show off what you could do. And there was a, a lot of camaraderie and energy that got focused into that. During Kansas's heyday, guitarist and songwriter Carrie Levgren penned some of the band's most memorable hits, like Carry On Wayward Son and Dust in the Wind. Guitarist and songwriter Carrie Livgren, mm -hmm. he's no longer with the band. What happened with that? Well, Carrie pretty much retired. I mean, it was Carrie uh, had uh, had kind of undergone a uh, religious experience, uh, became saved and born again, and wanted to pursue other music in that vein. Uh, same with Dave Hope, our bass player. So it was the kind of thing that we got together, and they went their way, we went our way, but. It's it's interesting because you ask that question. There are no hard feelings today. Uh, Steve retired uh, because of his uh, vocal problems. If he was sitting here, he would tell you he was having a hard time singing, and it was just time. And he told me on the phone, "I'm, it's time for me to retire." Richard and I, we're just not done yet. Yeah, <laughs> we just we want to keep going, and and it was something that we wanted to do. So you ask a very good question about how this happened, and I don't think Rich and I really saw it coming as much as we had addressed this in the very early days of the band, is that the band would never be a soapbox for any one particular person's uh, beliefs, political views, whatever, because we were a band. Let's talk music for a minute. When you first recorded the album, Point of No Return, mm -hmm. did you say to yourself, Dust in the Wind is going to be big, it's going to be huge. Uh, that kind of goes back to the rehearsals when Carrie first played us the song. Uh, yes, we knew instantly that this song was going to be uh, huge. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure Carrie believed it. Uh, but He's probably know, the only one that didn't. Yeah, the rest of us were very emphatic, uh, very excited about the song. So that particular song, Dust in the Wind, we, we knew was going to be a, a big song and still is. Well, Ronnie, at your age and stage, uh, you were not around when they recorded that album. You're fairly new to them. I was two. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a little older than that. But, you know, I'm keeping in mind that while Kansas is known all over the world, there are people watching this who either haven't heard of the band or don't know much about the band. What makes Kansas different? You might be in a better place to judge that than other members of the band. Yeah, because I was a fan so early on, and to me the appeal was the diversity, the dynamics of the music, and, the, and just the talent that it took made such an impression on me. And you talk about Dust in the Wind. I remember being a teenager and going to the local guitar store. Every guitar teacher was teaching Dust in the Wind. It was such, just such a popular song, and 
I, I mean, I've heard it my entire life, and it's in, I think it's ingrained in people's brains. Why do you think that is? What, what about this particular song? Um, Kerry just really, it turned out it was just a finger-picking exercise, and his wife asked him to maybe consider making a song of it, and he was reading a book about American Native Indians, um, and it kind of inspired him to write the lyric. And the, between the lyric and the haunting melody and everything about it, it was timeless when we did it, and it's remained timeless. Uh, it just, there's something about that song. Uh, it's one of my favorite p parts of the night is I'm the guy that gets to start that song, you know, and everybody in the, in the audience knows the song, they know every lyric. Most of them have a personal story about it, and I'm very grateful for, to be that guy. It's, a, it's quite an experience to play something that has so much meaning to so many people. It was uh, something that only comes along every once in a while. I know that over the years we've been asked by record companies and fans, why don't you guys write another Dust in the Wind? Okay. That, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> I mean, you can try, you can give it a shot, but there's not... there's. No more dust in the winds coming out of Kansas. We, uh, we played a show in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. And we'd been invited there, and we had no idea what to expect. We'd never been to that part of the world before. And this was not that long ago, five or six years ago. And the place, it sold out really quickly, and I was saying, what took you so long to get here? Who knew? Um, but, but the standout of the night was playing Dust in the Wind because, you know, being acoustic, you could hear the crowd. And they were singing so loud that I, you could hear not just them singing, but their Bulgarian accent. <laughs> and it was one of those moments that just will forever be frozen in time to me, was the impact of that song so far away. How did 2.3 million people waiting for Kansas's new album reduce pressure on the new lead singer? Find out when Dan Rather's big interview returns. You know, these guys aren't all work. Let's find out how 2.3 million fans gave a new lead singer a chuckle. Ronnie. Anything humorous happened since you joined the band? Do, do we have that kind of time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. There are bound to be incidents, anecdotes, not necessarily from the road, but, you know, what's really made you have a belly laugh or a very wide smile? Uh, well, Phil here. First time we were in the studio recording the Prelude Implicit, and I'm feeling like I've won the rock and roll lottery. You know, I've, I, I got to become the lead singer of Kansas, and then to find out that Kansas wants to put out a studio album of new material, wow, that's, I mean, beyond my wildest dreams. But then to have uh, a hand in writing it also was huge, but I'm about to do my very first vocal in the studio, and Phil comes up to me and he says, just relax, have fun with this, you know, get used to it, have a good time, just totally put it out of your mind. 
that there's 2.3 million people waiting for this right now. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> no pressure. So. No pressure. It was only your career. Right, right. <laughs> so, but I mean, that, it, it struck me. It, it work? Uh, no. Well, you sang well. You, you <laughs> no. sang well, so it must have. Yeah, yeah but. I'm in a band with a bunch of friends now, you know, I, I mean, I had that iconic vision of them, you know, at my first rehearsal, which very quickly dissolved away because... That's what happens just, when you get to know us. <laughs> yeah, we just related so well so quickly and it's, you know, just uh, all good friends having a good time now, you know, trying to keep the, the jokes at a maximum. <laughs> well, we'll get back to some personal things. Phil, including the time with the band, what's the worst thing that's happened to you in your life? Wow. I'm not sure I could talk about it. It has to do with my son being diagnosed with autism. That, that's the worst thing. I can understand that, and I. I wasn't prepared, so I'm sorry I'm not all together. One can fully understand when you say, with emotion, that's the worst thing that's happened in your life. What have you learned from that going forward? Well, I learned that there's no cure. You know, my wife and I, it was our first child. And we had to become autism experts, and we became our kid's biggest advocate. Noah being my first child, I had him late in life. And uh, so you have a lot of plans. You have a lot of hopes and dreams. Those disappear. So you end up having other hopes and dreams. And I, I don't want to leave the impression that Noah somehow has ruined my life. I, I don't. That's the worst thing I could do. Yeah. Richard? Probably for me personally was losing my eye. Um, Fourth of July between seventh and eighth grade. I was, I was a dumb kid until I was about 50, I think. And <laughs> but when I was 14 or 15, I was messing around with fireworks and did something stupid and I blew a, the clothes off my body and burnt this hand a hole through this one and blew the eye out of my head. Um, it would have been traumatic probably at 30. Um, at that age, once I got, was, uh, came awake in the hospital, the doctor said, well, son, we had to remove your eye. I said, did you keep it? You know, because I wanted to put it in a jar to take to school. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, kids are, are a lot more resilient than you think. I would have been horrified at 30, but it, at that age, I was more fascinated by the whole process. Ronnie, you know, as old, not that either one of your companions is old, look who's talking, <laughs> uh, but what's the worst thing that's happened to your life and what'd you learn from it? You know, I I've had a chance to think about this question now that you've asked Phil and Rich, and I'm sitting here thinking, I really have not had anything that tragic. I've had a charmed life and it's 
really uh, a, a freak of nature for me, uh, thinking about the odds. Uh, growing up with a very young with a father that was a severe alcoholic, my parents getting divorced, dropping out of high school, but yet I, I developed some work ethic and I, I really have lived a double life. I mean, I've, I've been a truck driver and I've been a musician. Now I'm only a musician, but for 25 years plus, I was a truck driver and a musician. So I've ah, lived but a another, double life. Another part of my imagination is burst. It isn't true that you were the singing truck driver. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I want to say something to what Ronnie says, though, because um, uh, when Steve retired, uh, we knew that this was not going to be an easy thing to find, to replace Steve Walsh. And Ronnie will be the first to tell you, you can never replace Steve Walsh. Uh, that's impossible. But we needed a singer, and we needed a great singer. But more than being a great singer, he had to fit in with our band. He had to fit in. And, and so Rich and I met up with Ronnie at the Atlanta airport. We flew him in, he came in, we kind of met at a hotel, and he sat down on the floor, and Rich and I were on the chairs, and we were just kind of talking. And as we were walking out, I said, uh, okay, you got the gig. No audition. No audition. There was no audition. I mean, we had heard him sing on YouTube, YouTube and at gigs. Yeah. I mean, we, we had heard him sing. But that was only one part of it. You know, singing was one thing, but this work ethic that he talks about, him being a truck driver, meant a lot to me and Rich. It's like, this isn't some mamby-pamby guy that's going to come in and, you know, uh, want his own limo in his own dressing room and his own this or that. This is you, guy. You didn't get that memo? No, I didn't get that. <laughs> well, actually, I did. I just blew it off. But, you know, it was, uh, he, he came in and became a part. And it's, uh, with, with any of the, the new three guys that we've, we've added, that's been very important. And it helps that they've been, and I hate to use the word, but they're fans of the band. They knew our music. They knew of us. It wasn't like, you know, what are you guys talking about? So it was, it was an instant dovetail where Ronnie came in. It just fit. We, our first day of rehearsals, everybody's just going, this is just awesome. So he may not be the singing truck driver, but he, <laughs> he was to us. That, that was important to us. Ronnie, let's talk about With This Heart. How did that come about? We were on our writing sabbatical down in Florida, putting together music, and we had a rehearsal room where we just set up everything in a circle, and it's like everyone starts throwing ideas into the pot and see what comes out. And so we would do that during the day, then up at night, inst instead of going to the beach or going to the restaurant, I would be go back up to my room and just pound out lyrics and you know I'm, this is before I ever made submission one to Phil and Rich and you were singing but you hadn't submitted something you had I've written. never written I've never submitted anything I had written but we had this one song that was in a unique time signature and I had the basic recording of it and just started writing ideas and I was all prepared for them to go well, th these are these are very good. We like these, 
but we're going to go in this direction. You know, <laughs> I was all prepared for that. So imagine my excitement when I submitted those lyrics to, to Phil and, and he showed them to Rich and they're like, wow, these, these are great. We're going to use these. Here, well, now, I did ask you, though, how long have you been writing lyrics? About how, 10 minutes now. <laughs> we didn't, he never said anything to us before we hired him. Well, there's a new guy. He was hired as a singer after all. He was. Right. So it was, I, I read them and I went, how long have you been writing? Yeah, how long has this been going on? I wrote well, these about, last night. Yeah, last night. So again, it was uh, just a welcome surprise. I can't go through the whole list of songs. You've had so many. But let me turn to you, Richard. Tell me the story of Carry On, Wayward Son. How it happened, well, what we, the process was. We were in rehearsals to record the album. And the process is its exciting, but it's painful. And so been tearing songs apart and up and down. And the album is basically done now. And we're getting ready to go record. And Carrie was just on a writing streak. I mean, every day just come in. You know, I wrote this last night called The Wall. or it's like, And so you didn't want to turn the tap off, but we were done. And he comes, I've got one more song. Everybody's like, oh, could we want to pack up and head to the studio. And it's, he starts playing Wayward Son. So we worked it up a little bit. We went on into the studio then, and uh, as you're in an assembly line fashion, putting together your basic tracks with drums and guitars and bass and stuff, finally, okay, we need to start working on that new song. And so we were actually learning it as the tape was rolling, pretty much. So the, the, the version is probably the first time we ever played it correctly, because we were learning it as we went. Had that song not been written, that was the song that launched Left Overture. That was the song that made our career. Let me ask you about The Wall. The Wall was one of those songs that was in the middle of Carrie writing Left Overture. It was a time for Carrie that, in writing songs, that he, again, if he was sitting there, he would tell you, has never come back to him. That was a time when every day he was walking in with some of the best music, whether it was our band or not, uh, contemporary, you know, rock music that's ever been written, and uh, and it was every day, and these were extremely complicated songs. I mean, you know, Cheyenne Anthem, Miracles Out of Nowhere, uh, Carry On Wayward Son, you know, the songs that uh, you just don't kind of knock out in an evening, but he was. So, uh, you know, when the wall came, um, I just remember everybody kind of just stopping in our rehearsals and I remember it was always me, Rich and Dave, we kind of, as the kind of the rhythm section, we kind of said, we just kind of <laughs> looked at each other and went, this, this is really something. Money, when, when you first asked to sing the song, did that sort of raise the hair on the back of your neck saying, listen. That uh, was the first song I asked him to sing. Yeah. When you come down, be sure and to sing the First song wall. at rehearsal. That's what we wanted to hear him sing, because that was top of you the Talk about line. pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, uh, it's just, it, it, it's such a song with such deep meaning and emotion, and, and Steve just brought it to the bank with the emotion that he 
just inflicted into that song is amazing. And it's, it's very apparent the impression it's left on Kansas fans because when we're doing that song, no matter where I look in the audience, I'm seeing people sing those lyrics. And it's, it's just got an intensity to it. It rises now before me, a dark and silent between all I am. You know that I would ever want to be. It's just a travesty. Tell me something about Kansas, the band, that nobody knows or that very few people know. I think what very few people know about this band is this is not a dead serious band. When it comes to coming to work, we're very serious. We're very serious about the music. We drill this music trying to strive for perfection with every song. But when the work part is over, we really enjoy each other's company. This band, our crew, our management, we're always laughing. And I don't think people see that part of us very often. And that's, that's what makes this so much fun. Richard, you've had time to think about yeah. it. Tell me something well, I don't know about Kansas. You know, really what Ronnie said was, the first thing that came to my mind was that you know, people said, God, I wish I was a fly on the wall when this was being created. I said, no, you really don't. Because <laughs> what's going on behind the closed doors is usually pretty off color, and it's a lot of laughing and joking, and we stumble upon things you know, by the journey of figuring things out. But... It really isn't this deep think tank that people imagine. And I think one of the biggest compliments I ever read about a for, from a former band member, John Elefante, was he replaced Steve Walsh um, for a couple of albums back in the 80s. Um, so people were asking him, what was it like to be in Kansas? And his response was, you know, what impressed me most about, uh, most about them was those guys never knew how big they were. And that was really accurate. I'm very proud of what the band has done, but personally, I can't even wrap my mind around that. I'm just a guy from Topeka that got lucky enough to be part of this. So I'm in awe of everything we've done myself. And so I thought that was quite a compliment that John gave us that you know we, ne we never knew. Well, I mentioned you, you're making this 40th anniversary tour. What's next? What's next for Kansas? What's ahead? Well, um, I think it's, it is this band, Today's Kansas, which fe features the three of us. Uh, Billy Greer, our bass player, who's been with us for over 30 years and a heck of a musician and a heck he of a He must be doing player. something right if oh, he stayed with you for 30 yeah, years. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. And David Ragsdale, our violinist. He's been with us since the 90s. Yeah, he's been with us since the 90s. And then, you know, uh, Zach Risby, as well as David Mannion on keyboards. Uh, those, those are the seven of today's band. And what we look forward to is tomorrow. I mean, we, we do have this past, and that's the horse that we ride, on, ride in on. If we didn't have this past, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. But it's, it, we have a new album planned to start recording in January and February of 2019. We're going to continue the Point of No Return tour, and we're going to carry through 2018, and then in 2019 start the remainder of that tour. So even though we're doing 
the older material and doing it in its entirety. At the same time, we're writing new stuff. And, and that's, what, that's what we feed on. I mean, we can't constantly regurgitate uh, what we've done in the past. You just become somebody in the past. So we look forward to always pushing ourselves uh, musically, and we have a great group of guys uh, there doing it, and look forward to, we look forward to gigs every weekend and every year going out and doing what we do best. So that's really what lies ahead. Well, what question have I not asked that I should have asked? I wanted yeah. to uh, address one thing that you said. You asked the question about how a, a, a band like ours came out of Topeka. That was really the impetus to do the documentary, was it is such, once the 40th anniversary came around, we were talking about a book or a video, or we thought, no, this, this story needs to be told in, in a film fashion. And uh, the documentary really answers those questions because it's called Miracles Out of Nowhere, is what it's called. And it wasn't, we weren't trying to be pretentious, or it just happened to be the name of one of our songs. But once you watch that, there's no way that this band should be here, should be here today, should have been. I mean, it was such a long, long shot that it was, uh, that's what helped the story be told because as Rich and I would start talking the documentary on the phone, we are going, that really happened that way? God, I, I thought, you know, and, and as we put it all together, it was uh, our, our director, Charlie Randazzo, did such a great job in directing it and editing it that um, it, w it w really was miraculous that, you know, guys like us uh, came out from that little town and made the mark that we did. And 45 years later are still... Uh, but I'm not sure there's a single reason, you know. There's a lot of things that happened that, that made that happen. So just wanted to throw that in there. This has always been my passion, is to be part of this, part of, of a group of guys. We can go back, you know, and look at the gold albums on the wall, and that's all great, and I'm very grateful for our past. But the, taking the next storp, step forward, the hunger to keep doing that is really why we do this. It's not on some past glory so much as is just the need to continue the march. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sure. Hope you had Thank you, fun. sir. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media where we share behind the scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.